Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Nathan Leaf, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and in the chair next to me is Rich Larson. Rich, what topic will we present to our listeners today? Today, we are welcoming a guest who is no stranger to this show, that's for sure. Uh, Northfield Chief of Police Mark Elliott, who will help us understand the uh, the public policy challenges associated with the ongoing fentanyl epidemic across the United States that teaches every uh, that touches every community in the state of Minnesota. Mark Elliott has served for more than three years as chief of the Northfield Police Department after more than 31 years in law enforcement, including stints as deputy chief of the Northfield Police Department and as a, as a detective, sergeant, and then commander of the Professional Standards Division for the Bloomington Police Department. He's a Minnesota native. Chief Elliott has more than 17 years of supervisory experience in training and directing police work. Chief Mark Elliott, our friend, welcome back to Public Policy This Week. Rich, Nathan, thank you for having me. This is such an important topic for our community and and really for every community, big and small, urban and rural across America. There's not a single community in our country that has not been affected by the crisis. And I'm sure we'll get into details over the next hour, but the evolution and changes that have happened over the past several years related to opioid use and abuse are staggering and so much more lethal. Well, you and I have, have t- talked a little bit about this uh, this topic in the past. And so I, I when, when the idea to do a fentanyl show came up, you were the first name that I thought of. So we really appreciate you coming into to hang out with us today and talk about, boy, what an uplifting conversation this is going to be. (laughs) It is depressing in many regards, but uh, I promise we'll talk about some good news in there too. That's great. Chief Elliott, let's kick this discussion off with the big picture. Fentanyl and other opioids are fueling the worst drug crisis in the history of the United States. Uh, More than 1,500 people per week die from taking some type of opioid, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, making opioids by far the leading cause of fatal overdoses in the country. In recent years, the crisis has become defined by fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that is some 50 times more potent than heroin. Uh, But before we dive into the specifics of fentanyl, can you give us the 10,000-foot view of the broader opioid epidemic in the United States and and how you have witnessed this crisis evolve over the course of your career here in Minnesota? Well, for my first two decades in law enforcement, I saw many changes in drug trends from cocaine to crack and then to meth and to opioid pills. And each of these changes are driven by a search for a stronger high or cheaper high. But one thing they all have in common is the drug cartels behind them uh, searching for profits. And they're profiting off destroying lives. As a crackdown on diversion of opioid pills happened, counterfeit opioid pills came into the market. And these counterfeit pills were largely made with the same opioid uh, ingredients as regular pills. 
but that changed and fentanyl started to show up in them and then just straight fentanyl in them. And as I mentioned, the lethality of fentanyl has been a game changer. Fentanyl is so strong that just a few micrograms can kill someone. And depending on who is making the fentanyl, blending or cutting it can determine the lethality. Since these illegal drug manufacturers are not regulated at all and the clinical precision a pharmaceutical company with regulatory oversight would have is not there, the result is varying doses each time and unsuspecting users getting a higher dose resulting in the overdose. Mm -hmm. Opioids in general have been highly regulated, or rather should have been, and the lack of accountability and the proliferation of diversion and abuse is what got us here. The lethality comes from the depressing or depression effect on breathing. When people overdose, they simply stop breathing. And we compare this to cocaine overdose where we see agitated behavior. There's a high chance for that behavior that alarms others and for intervention. When an opioid overdose happens, we don't see that. And with fentanyl, it happens even faster due to how strong of an opioid it is. Okay, I I, I want to drill down on this for just a second. I've got a couple of questions that I, I've always kind of wondered about with fentanyl. And Chief, I don't expect you to to like completely understand the mind of a, of, of a criminal or a, a drug dealer, right? But I, I yeah, when we're talking about drug cartels, we are talking about capitalistic systems. Um, and one of the things they like they like to do is they they will recruit customers by, you know, giving you a little taste or whatever and get somebody addicted. So this movement to fentanyl to, to you know, create a cheaper product or, or to create a, a, you know, to cut your product is killing their customers. And I, I don't, like, it does not make any sense to me at all that this kind of a system would be introduced in, in, in into a money-making operation. Do you, I mean, do you have any insight on that? You know, probably the best um, I'm putting you on the spot here. It is, but probably the best answer I can give for that is it's a cost of doing business. And they feel that the proliferation that they've seen with more people seeking that high Mm -hmm. and them getting people hooked on a stronger high, they're going to lose some customers through overdose and death. Right. But they're going to gain more customers through seeking that high, and so for them, it's a cost of doing business. Yeah, it's just it's just so. I mean, I want to say interesting, but it's uh, it's something on the darker side of that. So, let's talk specifically about fentanyl. What what is fentanyl, um, and how is it how is it different from the other opi- opioids in terms of potency and lethality? So I'll dig into my research nerd a little bit here. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we invited you, man. That's great. Uh, Fentanyl was created in 1959. Dr. Paul uh, Jansen, he was uh, intravenous, or it was created as an intravenous surgical analgesic. And it's 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And because of that strength, the drug was rarely used, except for in hospital operating rooms or on large animals. In the 90s, a new transdermal patch for fentanyl was developed to treat chronic pain. Um, so it was a non-surgical method to deliver uh, that fentanyl. And it could be given to chronic pain patients and those out uh, in the community. So that non-surgical uh, method. But it was highly developed in the way that it is absorbed through the skin and so safe for uh, use outside of uh, uh, operating room. So... 
what is the problem? Well, twofold. One is more powerful than many other opioids, such as morphine, oxycodone, or even heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the power it has and the very small amount that can be lethal. And then the other problem, as I mentioned earlier, this was developed for medical purposes in a surgical setting with trained medical professionals right. administering very specific doses in a controlled environment with medical monitors carefully tracking body functions such as heart and breathing rates with scientific accuracy. Illicit use of fentanyl has none of that. Yeah. And that is why it is so dangerous. Yeah. And then secondly, fentanyl is often mis- mixed with other illicit drugs that the users may not be expecting to have fentanyl in. And so if it's mixed with uh, methamphetamine or cocaine mm-hmm. or a prescription pill or what someone believes is a prescription bill, pill, that is a lethal combination and people are unsuspect- unsuspecting of that. And we can talk more about sure. that later. So this is almost, I mean, it, 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 it kind of makes me think of... of the, the virus that we've just been dealing with it, that it was create. Okay. If you believe the conspiracy theories, right. Created in a lab, whatever, but then it got it out into the wild and, and, and now we have an epidemic basically is what is what we're looking at. Yeah. Obviously it was meant for one thing. Yep. It was developed and meant to be used in a very controlled environment and it is not being used that way now and it's being abused that way. And the lethality that it carries with it is so dangerous. Okay. Mark, what are some of the primary causes uh, that have uh, contributed to the rise of, of, of this, this epidemic in the, in the U.S.? Well, I would say to start with the pharmaceutical businesses profit through the proliferation of the prescription opioids. Yeah. Um, now, I think we're all aware of this, and Big Pharma has settled multi-billion dollar lawsuits with states and are paying opioid settlement dollars to states in order to help address the epidemic and once doctors pulled back in prescribing these drugs that illicit market stepped in opportunity Uh, a major contributor to the opioid crisis was availability modern internet e-commerce enabled individual people and small-scale drug trafficking organizations and large-scale ones with their own production facilities to flood the illicit drug market with fentanyl The drugs could be purchased and delivered through standard mail to the United States from places such as China. And in many cases, drug users and mid-level dealers have no idea where or how their drugs are manufactured or what they may be cut with. And these illicit markets actually lowered the price of these illegal and non-regulated opioids, which result in users getting a cheaper high and increase their use. Large-scale drug trafficking organizations capitalized on this as well, and we have seen Mexican drug cartels buying fentanyl by the shipping container from China and mass-produce both fentanyl pills and powders that are mixed and cut with other drugs and then smuggled in the U.S. being their long-established and as well as new supply lines. But the result has been a stronger and cheaper high, which unfortunately is less consistent and more deadly. I'm curious about the the sources uh, that you just referenced for both legally manufactured fentanyl and illegal fentanyl in the United States. Where is it coming from and, and how much of it is produced domestically versus imported from other countries? Well, the majority of fentanyl is manufactured in China. In fact, just this month, the Justice Department announced the unsealing of eight indictments charging China-based companies and their employees with crimes related to fentanyl and methamphetamine production, distribution of synthetic opioids, and sales resulting from the precursor chemicals. 
this indictment builds on prosecutions announced in June and marked the second set of prosecutions to large China-based chemical manufacturing companies and nationals of the People's Republic of China for fentanyl trafficking precursor chemicals into the United States. So the precursor chemicals making up the essential ingredients of fentanyl and fentanyl-related substances is from China. These are primarily shipped to Mexico, after which drug trafficking organizations process the chemicals into drugs. The chemicals are produced into fentanyl-containing tablets, powders, liquids, and then they enter the United States via our southern border. It's estimated China is responsible for over 90% of the illicit fentanyl that comes into the U.S. And most of that wow. is going through Mexico. There is some coming straight into the U.S., some going into Canada and coming in that way, but the majority of it is going to Mexico and then coming in. And now you're just going to tell me it's all coming from the Wuhan province too, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that that is true, but it's definitely being manufactured right. over there and then okay. uh, and then sent over. Um now, as part of the federal response, the Department of Homeland Security established a collaboration with U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, the United States Coast Guard, other federal agencies, as well as local and state first responders as well. And their goal is twofold. Identify and develop improved fentanyl detection capabilities, including standards and advanced rapid detection technologies and analytics. So how do we detect fentanyl coming in in shipments and shipping containers mm-hmm. um, and other methods? And then two, increase the capacity to disrupt that supply chain chain of drugs being smuggled into the U.S. Now, the federal response means that the majority of fentanyl does not come to the U.S. directly from China now. Some does, but most of it, as I mentioned, goes Mm -hmm. through Mexico before Mm -hmm. coming into the U.S. Um, It is obvious that much of uh, the fentanyl, like we talked about, and the precursor chemicals are being manufactured in China. Yeah. And so trying to influence that and disrupt that portion of the supply chain, the feds have really been working on. And those indictments from earlier this month show that they have. Right. You know, there was a day when, when the U.S. could uh, exercise um, some economic uh, uh, strength to sort of in, uh, influence China to maybe crack down on that. But those days are over. I mean, that, that we, we don't have any economic leverage with China anymore. So that's that's, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, it, it makes it sound like it's sort of an unfettered thing. Well, I think the fact that we have indictments that have come on that mm-hmm. show that the diplomatic route of trying to influence uh, a change in practice or behavior uh, simply has not been effective at all. Okay. I want to go back to something else you said, and I this might we might be covering this later in the show, and if we are, if I'm getting redundant, I apologize. But you know, you talk about how a lot of um, uh, a lot of the mid-level, mid-level dealers don't really know what they're selling. And I, I, this comes back to this idea that I just, this, this whole thing just boggles my mind that you're, you're, you're selling something that's going to, uh, you know, decrease your customer base. But in your experience, how often do these guys or these people know what they're selling or do they even have an idea of, of what, what it, like there's fent- they know what fentanyl is, Right. Do they even have an idea? They've got to have an idea of what they're doing, don't they? I would say yes. I don't know that there's anybody in the U.S. that doesn't know that fentanyl yeah. is in our illicit drug supply. So I would say yes, they know. I think um, at times their desire for profit uh, overrides um, anything else for them. And so if they're 
high-level supplier tells them that this is a shipment that has, say, 10% fentanyl in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So be careful with your new users, but your experienced users should be okay. They just take that as, okay, that's their word, and they go yeah. and sell it. Yeah. Um, in our investigations on those upper-level dealers, um, most of them, if they cooperate with investigations, they are saying exactly that. They're taking the word of their supplier of what it is. Right. And uh, they're hoping that that's the case. Okay. All right. For our listeners, this is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Nathan Leaf, and my co-host Rich Larson and I are talking with Northfield Peace Police Chief Mark Elliott about the fentanyl epidemic. Okay, so let's talk about how all this stuff gets a little more local now. Um, How do the trends and the features of the fentanyl epidemic in the state of Minnesota compare to the national picture? The good news first. Okay, good. (laughs) Minnesota hasn't been hit as hard as, say, the Northeast has been. I was just at a national conference earlier this month, and the pocket of Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey has definitely been hit harder. The stories I heard from there, um, obvious that they've been hit a lot harder. The other positive in Minnesota is the acceptance of treatment by those in our community, and then... um, also the access to that treatment. So while we still have a supply shortage, it's not what some parts of the country experience as far as treatment accessibility. And many parts of the country have waiting periods of months to get into treatment if someone wants to. During that wait, there's a high likelihood that someone suffering from addiction will go back to using. So as part of our training locally that we did with officers, um, we had a someone who was formerly addicted that talked about how her search for treatment, you know, vacillated. And some days she really didn't like the way her life was going and she wanted treatment. Mm-hmm. And two days later she was back to using and no no way was she going to do that. Right. So the fact that you can quickly get into treatment and that day that you are willing and seeking treatment is really important. If you have to wait months, it's really hard for someone who is in that um, substance use disorder or addiction lifestyle to uh, wait and on their own support themselves in this yeah. journey to sobri- yeah. sobriety. It just it doesn't really happen. Um, as a comparison from Minnesota, the national picture, now when we look at the Minnesota trend of opioid uh, overdose deaths from 2010 to 2022, we see we went from 229 to uh, 1,002, and listeners can't see this, but I have some <laughs> charts in front of you guys, and and you can see how there's kind of there was a steady rise from say 2010 to uh, 2017-ish, and then it really spikes up after that. And nationally, we saw synthetic opioids, which is primarily fentanyl, were the main driver of drug overdose deaths. And when we look at from 2015 to 2021, there's a seven and a half fold increase during that time. So it's very similar, really spiked up um, in the last uh, four years or so. Now, for both Minnesota and nationally, we see a little dip in there in 2018. This coincided with the lawsuits against Big Pharma and a pullback from doctors prescribing so much and state uh, oversight on big distribution sites of prescription pills. Mm -hmm. 
But quickly after that, the illicit pill and fentanyl market uh, stepped in, and that has driven the spike with more deaths uh, after that time. So the prescription opioid diversion and abuse caused overdoses to rise gradually, and then that illicit market has caused an upward spike. And that is, as we talked about earlier, just the potency of fentanyl and the unknown of what's in it. The prescription drugs, while being diverted and was causing overdose for people, they were substantially similar to what you would get one week to the next because they were made in a lab right um regulated by the pharmaceutical company and uh, the government yeah um when we're talking this unknown mix by illegal cartels or corporations it obviously is much less safe all over the board and exactly what we're seeing and then the combined with that like i mentioned before and we can talk about this a little bit more later um is the mixing Mm -hmm. of people finding right fentanyl mixed in with what they believe is another drug that they're buying. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I really appreciate the charts you brought us because it gives me a lot of, but <laughs> it gives, it helps me put some depth to the questions I'm asking. But, uh, folks, if you want to see any of the chart charts that, uh, chief Elliot brought, just get a hold of me, rich at kymnradio.net. I'll be happy to email you some of this. And those uh, charts are from some resources that we'll talk about. Great. At the end. Okay, cool. Um, so how does this then affect the overall crime rate in, in, in the state of Minnesota? Um, does the data show a correlation uh, uh, between you know, fentanyl and a rise in crime in the state? Well, that's much more of a subjective answer, I believe, because okay. we have a lot at play right now. So I will say, yes, there's a correlation, and yes, there's an amount of crime that is driven by drug use. I do not see that it is proportionally greater than with other illicit drugs. In other words, drug users commit crimes to support their drug use and because of their drug use. Examples are a person stealing a catalytic converter to scrap them in order to buy drugs to use. Or a person high on drugs, not able to rationally and coherently talk about a disagreement, and it becomes a physical assault. So drug use drives crime to get money to obtain the drugs. And then the use of the drugs causes behavior which is not consistent with what is normal in our society and creates another version of crime from that. Now, what makes it difficult to compare the rise in crime in the past few years, which has been substantial, uh, is the lack of accountability that we have seen due to a reduction in consequences for criminal acts that has happened at the same time. Now, between no court for about a year during the pandemic, so people that were committing crimes weren't having an immediate uh, impose correction to their behavior Mm -hmm. and then the reform practices that have eliminated consequences for many crimes but that's a discussion topic for another show (laughs) Um, so there's been a spike in crime and specifically violent crime since 2021 but with more than one factor at play in the relative same time period it's really hard to say what percentage can strictly be related to a rise in the fentanyl use Nate, I got to tell you a quick story. This has very little to do with with fentanyl, but uh, in January, my catalytic converter was stolen from my car, and the chief has sort of chided me since then a, a little bit because I I, I kind of lost my mind a little bit when, when I got, and so I kind of wondered during the show today if he was going to find a way to to, to to mix in a little catalytic converter uh, conversation. There it is, so. and he did. He did. Well done, Point <laughs> Elliot. <laughs> 
I'm curious about uh, fentanyl's place in the narcotics mix here in the state, and specifically, how does fentanyl use and and trafficking intersect with other substance abuse issues, such as methamphetamine or cocaine, specifically here in Minnesota? Well, yeah, as I alluded to earlier, there definitely is uh, a correlation there. And a quick answer is that it's in everything. We rarely find pure cocaine, meth, heroin, or prescription-looking pills right now when we're doing seizures um, on the dealer level. They're almost all mixed or laced with fentanyl. And the example I have for you here is the natural overdose deaths involving cocaine. And again, I have a graph for you guys. In uh, the example I have for you... Um, as you can see, the overdose deaths that involve cocaine with an opioid is five times greater than those with just cocaine. Wow. And this is common among all multi-drug overdose deaths that we see. People do not know what they are getting, and they are dying because of that. Uh, can we talk a little bit about, I mean, there's there was, I think, an emergent myth in, you know, several decades ago that, that um, drug use and illicit uh, gang activity around drug use was primarily a big city problem. Um, I think we've seen with the opioid epidemic and all drugs that this is all over. It's all communities. Can you talk a little bit about that and specifically um, the challenges there uh, for for local law enforcement in a community like Northfield? Well, it, it certainly does affect everyone and everywhere. Um, we see crime, you know, when you look at your major population centers, you may see some crime, uh, higher crime rates just because you have more people mm -hmm. there. But it certainly is is across uh, across the entire state. Um, yeah, just what is the current approach of, of your department and, and law enforcement agencies across Minnesota to combat fentanyl trafficking and... and um, addressing it on a local level so from a statewide perspective we need to target distribution and we are uh minnesota was designated as a high intensity drug trafficking area a few years ago that's a federal designation it gives additional resources okay. an entire unit um minnesota wisconsin are combined in there um and that brings in federal dollars and resources as well. Those resources include drug investigation, coordination, intelligence gathering, and intelligence sharing. Minnesota also has 21 violent crime enforcement teams, which target high-level drug dealers and violent crime that often is associated with that drug trafficking. Locally, we have our Cannon River Drug and Violent Crime Enforcement Team, which is made up of officers from uh, LeSueur and Rice County Sheriff's Offices and the Faribault and Northfield PDs. And they address high and mid-level drug trafficking and work cooperatively uh, with both federal teams and those 20 other VSET teams throughout the state. The sad part about many of these cases is the children we see involved. In many of these cases that involve these high-level drug dealers, um, they're dealing out of the home that they share with children. Child Protection Services often end up working with us on these cases to care for the children. And recently we had one where we executed a search warrant and there was a drug, drug residue and packaging right on a dresser in a bedroom that the child's bed was also in oh. so that child is sleeping where they're packaging and doing this and that risk of overdose from that child coming in contact with that powder or accidentally overdosing is huge that's obviously very scary not something we want to see and you know that is really what is driving our violent crime enforcement teams throughout the state to try to make a difference how can we 
try to disrupt this um, flow into our communities um, because we know that uh, the large cartels that are trafficking that is coming in and to our population centers or other parts of the uh, country and then eventually it has to make its way into our community so how can we find those local level dealers that are distributing right in our community mm -hmm. um, and the majority of those that we are seeing here not all but the majority that we are seeing here their supply is coming from the twin cities metro area mm -hmm. so we're trying to intercept those folks that are trafficking between um, those larger amounts that we see in the twin cities right and directly into our community but we also do have some of our interdiction that happens that is because we're right along that 35 corridor and mm -hmm. interstates are a supply line right. our work with our vset teams um we have a canine on our vset team which we can use as a detection dog obviously and working with the state patrol for doing interdiction on 35 as well as some of our partners in the immediate area as well uh, whether it's mankato rochester albert lee area we're working with all those partners because we know that they're all connected you talk about the the, the kids um one of the first stories I covered when I, I took the job as news director here in, uh, in town, in a neighboring community, there was um, a couple who had, uh, uh, I think they'd be, they thought they were shooting heroin, and uh, there was fentanyl in, in the drugs, and uh, they both died of, of an overdose um, overnight. And there was a six-year-old and a four-year-old in the house, and it was the six-year-old who called 911. And, I mean, stories like that wreck you. I mean, they, they, they go beyond breaking your heart. I mean, it's just, how does this affect that kid from six years old, from four years, moving forward for the rest of their lives? Right. And it's, I mean, this is, I'm just going to say this. I don't mean to editorialize too much, but fentanyl is not just an epidemic. It's a scourge. It's, uh, it's not, it, it's, it's really something that, thank you for the work you're doing, Chief. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you, Rich. Um, okay, so, so can we expand on, on this a little bit to talk about the, the resources uh, that you guys have for dealing with this whole problem? Um, you know, do you have adequate manpower? Do you have adequate funding? Do you have adequate education? Do you have adequate equipment? Do you have the tools you need to address the crisis in the state? And how have emergency medical services and healthcare providers been affected? Yeah, locally, this is part I get excited about because we are making a difference here locally. And our partners in uh, combating the epidemic here in Rice County are making a difference. I feel so lucky to be part of that group that is on the front. And I'm talking tip of the spear in battling this crisis compared to other parts of the country. And the resources we have here through local partnerships with government and non-governmental agencies, our nonprofits, our healthcare are outstanding. It is those partnerships that make a difference. Um, and we'll talk about those in more detail a little later when we get on more of the local side. Yeah. But on the enforcement side, manpower is a huge challenge. Across the nation, we are short police officers. There's stories every day about it. And unfortunately, when you're short-staffed, it's those proactive and investigative efforts that suffer. We have to respond to 911 calls, mm -hmm. um, and we have to have staff directed to respond to those first. So that means our patrol division, we're pulling resources from investigations, yeah. from administration, um, and putting them into 
frontline officers responding to calls. Unfortunately, for many communities, that means that those preventive and investigative activities suffer or are greatly reduced. Um, from an equipment standpoint, detection equipment for fentanyl is expensive, and lab results take months, and due to staffing shortages on that side of it, yep. there's backlogs. I mean, it's common now if we have a case and we submit for testing, mm -hmm. it's six months before we get those results back from the BCA lab. Wow. Which, unfortunately, sometimes means it delays prosecution, often means offenders are released, and they go back to dealing again. Yeah. Because so. there, you've got a right to a speedy trial, and if something like that is delayed like that, good yep. Lord, yeah, yeah, that's a huge problem. Exactly. Um, the, the equipment is good. The equipment is, uh, the, the federal government is doing some on the way of grants to help put that equipment in the hands of local law enforcement a little okay. bit so we can be doing at least that preliminary testing on it. So that, that has been helpful. Um, as for medical services, our ERs and our EMS providers, they are so short-staffed. Yeah. We hear about shortages in the medical field oh, every yeah. day. Um, and they're dealing with an increased call load and patients presenting with these severe addiction or overdoses. So their emergency patient load often makes it difficult for them to follow up and further stabilize a patient. Um, and then added to that, they see these patients that come in on an overdose or that they treat in the field and the patient just simply gets up and leaves after a dose of Narcan. And before they can even have the opportunity to talk about harm reduction and yeah. opportunities for treatment or how they can help them, they're getting up and, and heading out. Um, now, of course, when we're involved with that, we try to, and they do a, a great job of this as well. They try to influence, they try to encourage, but medical treatment, they can offer it, but when someone wants to leave, a lot of times they just leave and yeah. they can leave. Now, um, we do have the ability, as do doctors, to put somebody on a hold if we believe that medically it's necessary and they aren't capable of making a decision to care for themselves. Um, but we're not always present. And like I said, staffing at the ER, they have other patients and stuff, and a patient will just get up and walk out when yeah. nobody's around. Yeah. So that that's definitely difficult. Um from that aspect of it. Uh, we'll get into this a little more later, but I will say some of the resources that we have locally and the education that has been spread throughout the doctors and staff working in the ERs, um, as well as our first responder staff, they know that there's resources available for those folks and immediate resources available, and they have really been pushing that as well. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about the demographics, um, you know, which, which groups of people in Minnesota are the most affected by this whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that. And I have another you do. handy graph for you. you. Do. And, it, and it's really actually kind of a jarring graphic too. It is. Um, so here in Minnesota, the picture looks different across demographics and the graph in front of you from the Minnesota department of health shows what it looks like when adjusted for ethnicity. And this information is available on the Minnesota department of health's opioid dashboard. Um, and it shows that American Indian Minnesotans were 10 times more likely to have a fatal overdose as white Minnesotans. And black Minnesotans were three times more likely. Um, now, by sheer numbers, the white population has the most deaths, but it also the most populous race in right. Minnesota. Right. Now, when we dive into this a little bit, um, I think there's multiple reasons. And I think you could probably do a whole show on yeah, that as could. well. But yeah. um, when we 
there's obviously uh, American Indians that are spread out throughout our entire population, mm-hmm. um, throughout the state, and they live everywhere in the state. But there's also uh, a great amount of their population that lives on the reservations, which are primarily in rural areas, mm-hmm. which don't have as much immediate access to healthcare or intervention strategies and those type of things. So immediate care obviously is important. We'll talk about some things the state has done on that regard in a few minutes, but um, that is obviously one portion of it. Um, But then you also, within different communities, there, I think, is more acceptance of drug use. Mm -hmm. And when we look at different populations, with it being more accepted in one place or another, that that can also um, lead to increased risk of overdose. Um, here in Rice County, we haven't seen that disparity as, as high as the state has seen. But we have had overdoses and overdose deaths across all demographics. And our efforts include specific targeted outreach to the Latino and Somali populations that we have in our county. And the outreach includes culturally specific resources and outwork outreach workers that speak Spanish and speak Somali. So we're really trying to make sure that we are um, meeting people where they're at and communicating in a way that is effective for them. Now, by age, the 25 to 35-year-old uh, age range has the greatest number of non-fatal um, emergency department visits for opioid-related overdoses. Um, and when you think about our population, 25 to 34-year-olds are probably our highest risk-taking population. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, males make up 66% of those. Uh, so males make up two-thirds of our non-fatal overdoses. Um, the state didn't have fatal demographics available okay. on the same dashboard. Okay. Um, but I would assume that they probably are fairly comparable sure. as the non-fatal ED treatments. Yeah, just based on the, the, the press releases and news reports I see, I mean, that sound that rings true to me. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about it, but can you uh, expand uh, a bit on the geography? Are there specific geographic areas in Minnesota where the uh, fentanyl epidemic is particularly severe? Yeah, I don't have the, the personal knowledge on the statewide perspective on that as much as I do uh, on other trends or knowledge of our local trends. Um, however, by looking at OD map which is a mapping tool that is supported by the DEA in which law enforcement and healthcare report in real time overdoses they respond to and its surveillance data to support public safety and public health uh, efforts in mobilizing an immediate response to a sudden increase or spike in overdose deaths. Um, and it links first responders and records management systems uh, to that mapping tool so we can track overdoses. It stimulates a real-time response strategically across jurisdictions. So what, what that means is local law enforcement, and like here in Rice County, local law enforcement, our ambulance providers, and our emergency rooms are all reporting into this database. So, and, and this is true a, across many parts of the country. Um, it's true across Minnesota. They try to encourage all law enforcement and all emergency providers to report into this so they can see. So not every overdose is going to have a law enforcement response. Sometimes people bring their friend to the emergency room or the ambulance service responds only. So it's all of us combined reporting into that so we can 
if we see two, three overdoses come in in a short amount of time, a few hours or something like that in a community, we can respond right away. Okay, we need to get resources out there, go try to investigate that and determine where uh, that is coming from. It could be that we have um, a very bad mix mm-hmm. that is hitting in a community. It could be that we have unsuspecting users that they think they're buying meth and it has a lot of fentanyl in it um, and it's hitting this community really hard. Whatever it is, we try to get out there and intervene as soon as possible to try to determine where that source is and, and stop that. So when we look at that map for this year, the majority of uh, those overdoses are in metro areas. Um, the, the majority is where the most people are at. <laughs> so that, it really isn't surprising. But we get overdoses across our state everywhere, in every county and from city to farm. Okay. For our listeners, this is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson, and alongside me is my co-host Nathan Leaf. We are very fortunate to be joined today by Mark Elliott, the chief of Northfield Police Department, to discuss the fentanyl epidemic in the United States and here in Minnesota. And before we... Uh, dive into the uh, local specifics again uh, about how we're addressing this crisis. I would like to shift back out to the national picture for just a minute. What measures have been taken at the federal level to to combat this epidemic? Well, there's many and many different areas or facets of addressing this problem. Um, As mentioned, the Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol have stepped up interdiction efforts at our seaports and airports. In fact, locally, our local HIDA team was recognized for their efforts in interdicting packages and passengers at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport uh, that were bringing in folks that were bringing opioids into Minnesota. Um, and the national level of information sharing from one HIDA region to another is better than it's ever been. Those connections in the distribution supply chain um, are being made at a pace that I haven't seen before. So they're being able to connect um, passengers or packages and where they're coming from and are there similar packages going to other areas and where are they coming from that has is being done at a level that i've never seen before that's great Um, unfortunately the distribution networks are quickly replaced to the level of sophistication of the cartels running them Um, so i would say it seems like they're one step ahead of us Um, but we are making inroads into that and certainly uh gathering intelligence and sharing that more than ever has been shared before. Um, I will say one area I feel the federal level can step up their game is on outside of our borders. And it seems with the intelligence capabilities our nation has, Mm -hmm. we should be able to interrupt the manufacturing process and supply chains that are outside of our borders more than we are. I know Representative Dan Crenshaw from Texas has called for calling Mexican drug cartels terrorist organizations and targeting them as such. I can see the reasoning for that based on the number of our citizens that are being killed by this poison, but that is something our Congress needs to work on and definitely outside of the scope of my responsibility. But reducing supply would definitely help, though. So I've used this example before that I feel like the feds are providing resources for us down to the local level to deal with this. But it's almost like they're giving us a measuring cup to empty the bathtub. Yeah. Well, the spout is still allowing it to fill. Right. And we just can't keep up with that. Um, So if we could disrupt this um, in another way, 
it would definitely be helpful. Um, let me share one more example. I recently attended a presentation on the border crisis in Cochise County, Arizona, a very rural part of mm-hmm. Arizona. Not only is fentanyl coming across the border, sometimes it's coming across in the backpacks of school children that are crossing to go to school. So the children that live in Mexico, they're coming to school at these rural schools in the U.S., and they have pictures of where they had got information that these children were being forced to carry these backpacks across, and then they were being intercepted, taking those backpacks, and then the children were going to school. So when you see that, <laughs> um, it just... The cartels are smuggling Ill- illegal immigrants across the border, and in exchange, you're required to pay for their passions through distribution of drugs once in the U.S. So this presentation covered those different aspects that they're investigating and that they're seeing there. And I have an example of this from a case I worked as a drug unit commander at, at a previous department years ago. So we had a source that was delivering kilos of meth. We surveilled him for weeks, patterned his movements, where he went, where he lived, who he met with, etc. All the things we normally do. The guy was working as a cook at a restaurant. This is unusual for somebody that's dealing kilo levels. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to work every day, eight hours a day, had a wife and two kids. When we took him down delivering another kilo, we interviewed him. And he said he was doing this because he and his family were from Honduras. They were smuggled across the border into the U.S. And he owed this debt to the cartel. And they threatened to kill his family if he didn't work for him them to repay that debt. So he was paid or worked off his debt at just a couple hundred dollars for each delivery he made. But he owed thousands. And he figured it would take him a couple years to, to pay off this debt. Um, so... When we look at that, and this is where it gets, you know, so many, so many different areas are in there. I mean, when we talk about um, people crossing the border, and a lot of these people has been talked, they are coming across for good reasons. They want a better life, but they get caught up in how they get across, and now they owe this debt, and cartels are taking advantage of them to continue their distribution. Now, from a harm reduction standpoint, switching topics a little bit, the feds most recently removed the need for a prescription to buy Narcan, the overdose reversing drug, and that was huge. Now, anyone can buy it over the counter in case they need it or are concerned someone in their home or business may overdose. So they don't need a prescription anymore. They don't have to go visit their doctor to get this. It can just be in the hands of everyone. And locally, our grant from the Bureau of Justice Assistance, which was one of 32 rural community grants, allowed us in Rice County to start a a police-assisted diversion program where we were able to divert people we interact with from criminal justice system directly into treatment. And we can talk about that more in a few minutes. Back to this thing with the kids for just a second, and I I can't help it. I'm going to editorialize for a moment. I... um, Representative Crenshaw, I've heard him talk about uh, that before, that, that, that we need to label the uh, the cartels as terrorist uh, organizations. This is a political statement. We try to stay away from politics on this show, but I, sometimes politics and common sense intersect every now and then. And um, Representative Crenshaw and I generally don't agree on much. I agree with that uh, statement 100%. When you talk about... Uh, uh, smuggling drugs over the border in kids' backpacks. That is a page right out of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was a terrorist organization. 
if you're going to act like a terrorist organization, you should be labeled as a terrorist organization. My two cents. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll agree with you in that I, I'm surprised there's not more public outrage over this right. and a demand to do something for the flow coming in. When we look at what uh, U.S. response was after 9-11, mm-hmm. um, which killed a few thousand of our citizens, and the response to fentanyl, which is killing hundreds of thousands every year. Right. Proportionally, I, I can't believe we're not taking a stronger federal stance on that. It, it, it is shocking. Mark, what, okay, so, so sticking with the, the politics of the whole thing, right? What legislative changes have been proposed or enacted in Minnesota to, to address this issue? So Minnesota's seen many changes, and one that started right here in Rice County was the decriminalization of fentanyl test strips. That was something our Rice County Opioid Response Council discussed, and we lobbied for test strips to be legal so that users could test their drugs to see if fentanyl was present. Our local users were telling our support teams that they were using but worried that what they thought was oxycodone may not be, and it may be fentanyl, and they wish they could test it before using. So that is one of many harm reduction strategies in place here in Minnesota. In 2019, House File 400 directed all opioid-related settlement dollars to be used for opioid abatement. Not for roads, parks, bridges, anything. It had to go to opioid abatement. And this meant the dollars that Big Pharma settled the lawsuits with that comes into the state will be used to battle the epidemic that they helped create in the state. In 2022, the Opioid Settlement Funds bill passed and set up allocation of these funds into communities to help address the epidemic. So the funds coming into the state were going to go out to the communities. Now, I'm not entirely happy with what the end result was, as communities of less than 30,000, like ours, did not Mm -hmm. get the money. It went to the county, which removed some locally specific control, I would say. Here in Rice County, though, our communities and the county are working well together to address the differing needs and priorities of each community. So it, it's working here, but I have concerns that maybe that wasn't the right way to go. Just to follow up on that, so you, there is, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've seen good cooperation between, you know, the Northfield Police Department and the Rice County Sheriff's Department and the Fairboat Police Department. I mean, you, you guys are, I mean, the... the Rice County Sheriff's Department is sharing with you. Well, it is, and it doesn't just go to the, it goes to the county. So Rice County Public Health, Social Services, all of those are working together on this problem. And we are sharing those funds and sharing our resources. So it is working here. Um, And these funds locally are supporting many of our efforts, which I'll talk about in a minute. And they're doing exactly what they're intended for, helping those with addiction to get opioids, uh, or with addiction to opioids to get treatment. Sure. Um, one other law that passed uh, last session required law enforcement officers to have two doses of Narcan with them while on duty with them or in their squad. And officers are often the first ones to uh, overdose calls and minutes matter in reviving someone from an overdose. So having Narcan with them can help save lives here in Northfield. Um, our officers are doing, or were doing this before the law was passed. Um, and they had Narcan in every squad. And then additionally, the programs that we are involved in with our officers, including a leave-behind program, means Mm -hmm. anyone can benefit from that if we're out on a call and there's a need. At the scene of an overdose, a mother calling because she's worried her adult son may be using, or at a domestic call where they're fighting over the spouse's use, will leave Narcan behind at all of those calls. If I am a uh, private citizen, um, and I, I ha- feel like I have someone close to me that is using. Can I come to the police station and get a dose of Narcan? 
Yes, sir. All right. You can come to our public library and get it. Oh, really? Uh, you can come to one of our local pharmacies in town. Our local pharmacies are cooperating with uh, our Rice County opioid reduction strategies on that. And not only can you get it, buy it from there, but they also have a way to get free Narcan, too. Um I know the key is a distribution site mm-hmm. in town for our young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rice County Social Services. If you Google the Rice County Most or Mobile Opioid Support Team, someone will come and meet with you, explain what options are available to you, and leave Narcan behind for you as well. That's fantastic. Well, along those lines, what are the main treatment options available for individuals struggling with fentanyl addiction in Minnesota? And and what is the role of these harm reduction strategies uh, you've talked about in addressing the epidemic? So there's many paths into treatment and different treatment options, inpatient, outpatient, individual and group therapies, medication-assisted treatment, just to name a few. Here in Rice County, call your local police. Yep, that's right. The same team that you were worried about catching you with illegal drugs, call us. We will give you amnesty to turn in your drugs, and we can get you in contact with our local community-based coordinator to explain options for you. Or we can even drive you directly to a treat pre-treatment housing center where you can undergo the assessment process uh, for the treatment option that's right for you. And then from there, go directly to treatment. So we even have post-treatment peer recovery specialists to help you navigate reintegration after treatment. Those are peers, people who uh, just like you were using a few years ago, they have walked your walk and they want to help you get on their path of recovery. Now, not very many communities have all of this. And even fewer have a police-led diversion program, but they are coming more, becoming more common. In fact, I was just at National Conference for Police Treatment and Community that had a convening where there are over 400 professionals from public health, treatment, therapy, corrections, and law enforcement all working together and learning from each other, um, along with the Bureau of Justice Assistance, on how we can direct our community members uh, to specific treatments for this epidemic Um, and that's huge all of us working together to because we know that all of us play a part in this whether it's treatment whether it's law enforcement whether it's our emergency uh, medical staff we all play a part in treating this epidemic and working together is the most effective way to work through it sure so okay and i jumped the gun on, on this question a little bit but what can individuals and communities do to help prevent uh you know Overdoses, fentanyl-related overdoses, I guess, specifically, and addiction in Minnesota. So let me briefly tell you what we're doing in Rice County because I think it's a really good model. Um, In fact, I've got a handout for you on this, and it's called the Rural Opioid Epidemic Response Model (laughs) that Rice County is doing. And um, there's been an effort that has spanned behavioral health, education, health care, general community and law enforcement and all coming together, talking and working together to make changes. So from our rapid response team or our most team, which will go out and meet with people where they're at and explain what their options and how they can get treatment, um, a syringe service program. So people can come in and turn in their syringes if that's how they're using it. And they're meeting with a healthcare provider, which is offering to tell them about options they have for treatment and for getting clean. Um, our medical assisted treatment providers. So this is huge. When we started this in 2019, we had one physician in the entire county that was wavered, they call it, from the Department of Health to be able to prescribe to people, say, Suboxone or Methadone to 
treat their uh, addiction. And at the start of 2023, we had eight. That's huge. Not only did we have eight, but we had them in every different healthcare organization that is in the county. And those providers are teaching their coworkers, their yep. other doctors, uh, yep. that this is available. So the proliferation of medical assisted treatment is huge. Um, a Suboxone affordability program, so we're helping people either get on insurance or to pay for their Suboxone until they get on insurance. Um, a jail-based Medicaid-assisted treatment program, so folks in the jail are having mm -hmm. an opportunity to meet with a healthcare provider to say, hey, we can help you with your addiction. There's resources available, whether you're in jail or when you get out. Um, that OD map that I talked about, mm -hmm. we're utilizing. Everybody's reporting into that. We have Take It to the Box, which has been for years. So if people have prescription drugs or, or drugs that they are concerned about, that they want to do that, the lobby of every law enforcement station here in the county has that. They can bring it to Northfield PD, drop it off right in our lobby. Those fentanyl test strips I talked about, the uh, naloxone or Narcan uh, availability program, free pickup, drop off, mail to their home. We'll drop it off. Come see us at the police department. We'll get it to you. Those are peer, peer recovery navigators. People with lived experience that are helping people navigate recovery is mm -hmm. huge. People that understand what they're talking about, who have lived that bef experience before. Um, we're doing a lot with prevention and education, trying to make sure our, our um, school children and their parents are aware of the dangers of fentanyl. Um, we have an overdose fatality review committee that meets monthly and, re and we review overdoses. And it is all encompassing from our healthcare to our corrections, uh, to our education, to law enforcement. Where have we intersected with this person who overdosed and looking for opportunities along the way that could have made a difference? So by doing that is very scientific review to say, hey, where, where could we have intersected and helped this person so we can try to make changes in our system to prevent further overdoses? And then our workforce development. So people coming out of treatment, they're in recovery. How can we help them get reintegrated into the workforce? Um, and be able to have a sustainable way of life. And beyond the legislative changes we discussed, uh, what efforts are being made to raise awareness about fentanyl and its dangers in Minnesota communities? Well, the program I just mentioned has been adopted by the Minnesota Department of Health as a rural model, and they're making efforts to replicate this in other part of the state. So how do we all work together? And that awareness is reaching out to the providers and partners in the community and making sure that they're all playing a part and connecting them to each other to make a bigger impact. Programs such as increasing the awareness of medication-assisted treatments, the jail-based intervention, Narcan availability, free test strips, all of those are relatively easy and inexpensive first steps. Chief, uh, we're winding down. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left. We're going to go into a little bit over time, but that's okay because this is a really important topic. I want to give you the last word. Uh, we always like to give, uh, give our guests, uh, ask our guests, what have we missed? What wasn't part of this conversation? So I'm going to just give you the floor. Well, thank you for having me and letting me talk about something I'm passionate about. You probably picked up on that. Yeah. And uh, what we were talking about here is community safety harm reduction, crime reduction, community care. People need to be held accountable for their actions, for their decisions, but that can be done with compassion. 
are actively addressing the fentanyl epidemic will make our communities safer, more productive. It will increase the quality of life for those addicted, for their families, for the employers, the churches, the schools in our community. We can't enforce or arrest our way out of this. While that is a tool for dealing with distribution um, and the networks that are poisoned, delivering this into our towns, um, but it's not the way to deal with those affected by it. We need harm reduction and repair tools, and we need a multidisciplinary community approach like we've talked about today. And finally, where can our listeners go to learn more about your departments and, and other law enforcement efforts to combat the fentanyl epidemic here in Northfield and across the state? So Minnesota Department of Health, some of the graphs that you have there came from them. So they have a lot of information on there. For Rice County residents, your local police or sheriff, or the mobile opioid support team. As I mentioned before, call the police, we'll come and help you. Um, for communities looking to replicate what we have here or start their own, uh, PTAC, P-T-A-C-C, our Police Treatment and Community Collaborative, part of the conference I was just in, they have resources available on the web. And then uh, federally, uh, uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So. SAM HSA, uh, and they have a lot of resources, both for mental health and for addiction uh, uh, that people can access from throughout the country and put them in touch with local resources as well. And this has been a great informative conversation, but unfortunately, we've reached the end of our program today. Uh, Chief Mark Elliott, thank you so much for joining us on Public Policy this week. Uh, Rich and I want to thank you for the conversation and for your insights this morning. Yeah, I want to echo that, uh, Chief. You've been a great friend of this show, and we uh, we, we tap uh, tap into you a, a fair amount, and I really, really appreciate I knew that you would be a good, uh, a good guest for this show today, but uh, what you brought us today was uh, above and beyond. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Joe, and thank you, Rich. Uh, I hope I was able to share some insight and perspective on how we got here, where we are at, and most importantly, how we can get out of here. And that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Nathan Leaf. Don't forget to join us again next week for another interesting public policy discussion. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thanks for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your Friday and a superb weekend, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.